Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings from Carlisle and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel Buck Haberichter, a member of the War Room editorial team and a faculty member here at the War College. I'm joined today by Dr. Amishi Jha. Dr. Jha is a neuroscientist and an associate professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She and her team study the impact of stress on attention and working memory. They've had the benefit of examining multiple different high-stress career fields to include professional athletes, first responders, and the military. Since arriving at the University of Miami, she has co-founded the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative and serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for that effort. She is here today in Carlisle to deliver a noontime lecture to the resident class of academic year 19, and she was gracious enough to sit down with us for this podcast, and we're thrilled to have her here with us. Welcome, Dr. Zha. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Good. Hey, before we get started on your background and how you got to this, um, I think for this crowd particularly, there's a group of our group of listeners, could you answer what is mindfulness as a whole? Just a, a general description of what it is overall. Right. So mindfulness has to do with a way of making our mind or a mental mode of paying attention to our present moment experience without a story about it or emotional reactivity around it. I like to always say it's like being, it's like being in the here and the now without any kind of editorializing about that. Okay. Uh, just basically, how is that beneficial? I mean, that sounds good in and of itself. What's the, what's the benefit of that process of being in the moment? The main benefit is uh, that most of our moments, we aren't really there. And frankly, all we have is right now. So what do I, what do I really mean by that, that we're not there? I mean, I'm sitting in front of you. I'm here right now. Really, it has to do with this capacity, wonderful and amazing capacity that our brain has to engage in mental time travel. So regardless of what we're doing, whether we're driving or, you know, sitting in front of our computer, our mind can literally be thousands of miles away and it can be in the past or the future. And we call this aspect of our spontaneous mental activity mind wandering. So mind wandering has to do with having off-task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. The key is that you're trying to do something. You actually are trying to craft that email or even read an article. And while you're doing that, the mind gets pulled away to some thought about the past or some planning about the future. And it gets us into trouble. I mean, we make more mistakes. We experience something called perceptual decoupling, which is that the input we get from our perceptual environment is degraded when we're mind-wandering. And it results in poor mood. So part of the reason we want to be mindful is that we want to have more capacity to show up in the present and not get yanked around by this sort of attentional hijacking that can happen through mind-wandering. Okay. So as I've spent more time here at the War College, I've been exposed to more business practices. And uh, we talked a bit over lunch as we were talking today. I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to a little bit of this or maybe a cynic when it comes to some of the mindfulness programs I've seen. I understand you might have been a, we'll come back to that, but I understand you might have been a bit of a cynic in the beginning as well as a, as a scientist looking at this. You know, I would say I had no idea what mindfulness was. Mindfulness, and sometimes people refer to it as mindfulness meditation, comes from the world's contemplative traditions. So this is wisdom from around the world. You know, we could talk about really the Stoics and Marcus Aurelius, or we can talk about Buddhism or Hinduism, Christianity, literally every major thread 
in the world's wisdom has some aspect of contemplative practice in it. And the utility of that for one's life, I was always, I just never saw the relevance to me. And even to this day, I would say the reason I find mindfulness training so interesting and compelling is because, frankly, it's exercising the brain to allow it to be healthier. There's no particular worldview that's required for you to pay attention to your breath, notice your mind wander, and return it. And the returns are quite significant, even if they're not profound in terms of, you know, I'm not, I'm a, not a different person, but I'm more here as the person who I am because I practice mindfulness. Okay. So uh, I, I was doing a little research for this podcast. It might surprise you. Uh, I, w- I was looking at your Twitter account, and there was a quote you specifically recited for it. They said, this hype needs to be balanced with actual science. Mindfulness is not a panacea. It's beneficial. It has small to modest effects, but those small to modest effects can be quite meaningful. I, I like that. I like yeah. the fact that first and foremost, as you said, it's not a panacea. This is not a cure-all. No one is going to suddenly come into remission from cancer for this, or, or it, it's not something that's going to immediately turn your life around in terms of huge demonstrable effects, as you said, but you do say it's meaningful. What do you mean by that? You know, let's just even talk about um, cancer, since you mentioned cancer, okay. right? So absolutely, it may not be the, the key aspect of what you'd like the outcome to be. But if you're able to change your relationship to going through the treatment, if you're actually able to combat the brain fog that happens through chemo, for example, and those are subtle yet important things that can help you get through a serious issue like an, a diagnosis of cancer or a treatment of cancer that can be life-altering even if they didn't result in the ultimate big win of knowing that you're now in remission. And this, this type of example we see over and over again is that the gains don't have to be um, large, but even small changes can have a big impact. And you know, this we just did a project recently with our uh, with special operations forces, and we at the end of this project, a mindfulness training project, we asked them, you know, how has this had an impact on your life? Mm-hmm. And I was in some sense expecting something cool, like oh, it helped me be a better warrior in this tough context or whatever. And the most kind of touching yet I would say powerful response we got was from um, somebody who said, I could go to my daughter's ballet recital and watch her. And, you know, that's small. You'd say, well, your eyes are on her, but where were you? And he would say, I was there. I witnessed the expression on her face, the love in her eyes when she could see daddy in the audience, right? So that's an example of what I mean. I mean, these are not huge, but these are meaningful changes that people can return to in their lives when they're embodied in what they're experiencing. And that is incredible for a, a group of individuals that are the most deployed uh, segment of our population in the military. The fact that they can actually truly enjoy and, they say, be present for those minimal times when they are home in between long deployments. Absolutely. And that's what they really feel like they can't do without some kind of support. They know how to be out on mission. They know how to accomplish their job well with excellence. But that's not every moment of their life, and they want the capacity to have better control over those moments where they're not out there. Mm-hmm. How did you get into this? How does a neuroscientist suddenly <laughs> find themselves in the midst of something that seems kind of abstract and right. a little mystical? I mean, you, you've caveated and said that it's not necessarily associated with any religion, but this yeah. is still something a little less than tactile in many cases. Right. So, you know, I'm a um, in my laboratory, we study how the brain pays attention. So studying attention was 
is part of what I do. And I've, I've always been very interested in understanding not only how it works, but how we can make it work better. Mm-hmm. How can we optimize it? And after seeing from study after study that attention is, though powerful, quite fragile and vulnerable, I became very curious about how it might be able to be trained. And at the paralleling all of these kind of intellectual inquiries and curiosities, I myself was going through something kind of as a profound, I guess, life event transition. I was a professor at that point at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, essentially got the dream job I always thought I wanted, worked hard my entire career to get to this sort of pinnacle of success. And after having my my first child, realized I was pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, outwardly, everything looked fine. I was professionally successful, but I couldn't show up to all the moments of my life. I felt like I wasn't the person I wanted to be. And part of what was failing me is that I had no access to my own attention. It was almost ironic. So I was on a search to figure out how to, you know, I know a lot about this brain system. Like, how do I return to it? How do I get access to it? And mindfulness came about literally through a senior neuroscience colleague of mine who suggested that it's something that they were starting to study in his lab to help people feel better. So I I really came to it from a personal curiosity about how I could train my mind to feel better um, as sort of a brain strengthening strategy. Mm -hmm. And after practicing it for, I would say, a couple of months, I did feel more present. I felt like I was living my life again. You know, there was a kind of a poignant moment for me where um, I was reading a story to my then three-year-old and it was one of these Dr. Seuss books. And, and I probably read it to him maybe for like three or four months. Every night he asked for this book. And at one point he he turned to me in the middle of the story and he said, well, what's a wump? <laughs> you know, it's one of these wump, 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 Dr. Seuss silly books. And I, I had no idea what he was talking about. And it it struck me that here is something I've been reading every day out loud to my child. And I had no idea what the content was. Talk about being on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So... After going through and kind of self-training and mindfulness, um, I realized I was just more present to my life. I was more attentive. I was noticing things. I was able to focus willfully and notice when my mind was getting hijacked away. And after seeing that it might have something to do with attention, I wanted to see, I was wanting to study it. Um, So the answer to the question of how did I get involved in all of this was it started as personal interest just in pursuing it and practicing it. And understanding that the benefits might be not only for me, a professor who had challenges with stress, but potentially for all of those professions that really have people that want to be at the top of their game and will always push push the boundaries of their own excellence, which means high stress. Mm -hmm. So that's how my work with the military started, is that I wanted to see how we might be able to help people not just uh, offer training to as a salve if they've come back and they have psychological illness, but best prepare them for the job they were about to do, uh, whether that's pre-deployment training or some kind of field training to be ready. So you've already mentioned, Saf, uh, you work with a, a number of different branches of the military and a number of different senior members within the military. Uh, I know Major General Pyatt is, uh, is one of your advocates out there that's speaking on your behalf and on this idea of mindfulness. Can you talk about what the reception has been like among some of the, the forces you've dealt with? Yes. I mean, I, I think, yes, we've worked with Air Force, we've worked with the Marine Corps, we've worked with Army and Special Operations and um, even civilian first responders. We've worked with firefighters and, you know, elite athletes, et cetera. So there's a lot of different groups where stresses and excellence are both, they both go hand in hand. And in terms of the receptivity, I would say that once people understand that what we're trying to do is very much 
aligned with a military mindset of training to achieve excellence, uh, they're they're very interested. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and General Pyatt says this all the time. He's like, we, we're devoting 90, day, 90 minutes every day to our physical well-being and our physical excellence. And we value it and we protect it. But what are we doing that's equivalent for the mind? And even if we decide we're going to devote some time to train the mind, what do we actually do? And this is where mindfulness training is quite beneficial because what it's offering is a, is a whole suite of sort of practices that people can do daily to strengthen their own attention, their own emotion regulation, their ability to decisively and with full awareness make decisions, et cetera. And kind of going back to, to General Pyatt, you know, he and I, he was the, one of the first commanders that allowed us access to uh, units in a, in a large research study called the Strong Project, mm-hmm. in which we trained about 120 soldiers in mindfulness training to see the benefits. Um, and so, and, and through the series of papers and publications that have come out from that, we've found that, yes, mindfulness training can protect against attentional declines and mood degradation that can happen over high stress. Mm-hmm. So essentially, the argument is it can help you in the fight. It can help you win the fight, right? You're more present, aware, situationally aware. Your mood is better regulated. You work better in your, in your team or your unit. Um, but he just returned. General Pyatt himself just returned from... Iraq, when mm-hmm. it was deployed. And what's been very interesting is to see how he himself, who's who started practicing shortly after we, we introduced him to it in our project, um, to see his um, take on how mindfulness training is helpful, not only in winning the fight, but really in winning the peace mm-hmm. and the complexity and the collaboration that needs to happen in, in that process, which I would say my appreciation for that has certainly grown. I mean, mm-hmm. it takes not only everything you need for the fight and more, but you need to overcome the tendencies you have from being trained to win battles uh, because peace building is a different kind of a, a endeavor. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a daily practice and you yes. compared it to 90 minutes of fitness a day. What are we talking about? What kind of timeline? What, what kind of, so, of yeah. commitment are we talking about? That's a great question. So, you know, really we want to know what's the least amount of time you can do and still benefit. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line, right? We're busy. We don't we want to spend more time than we need to. But the first thing I'll say with mindfulness practice is the more you do, the more you will benefit. In our projects, we, we started out by asking for people to practice these mindfulness exercises 45 minutes. We then moved it down to 30 minutes. Now in our programs, we ask for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason we've been able to move it down is because what we found was that when people practice about 12 minutes a day or more, they see benefits. So if you're only going to do it for some period of time, try to do it for 12 minutes a day, and you should at least get started feeling benefits. If you can do it for more, you will benefit more. In the most basic sense, what are we talking about? What are we talking about doing for 12 minutes? Right. So let's just talk about sort of the the, the basic push-up of a mindfulness practice, mm-hmm. right? So this is because, something called mindfulness of the breath or mindfulness of breathing. And the first thing I'll say is that you, you don't have to do anything special with your breath. This is not some kind of diaphragmatic breathing or breath alteration. In fact, the key for mindfulness training is to take an observational stance toward your experience. So you're watching the breath. So the instruction would be sit in a comfortable, alert posture, you know, dedicate some period of time, let's say 15 minutes, be somewhere quiet so you don't get overly distracted, Uh, turn off your technology if you can. And for that period of time, just follow these simple instructions. Focus on some sensation tied to the breath, whether it's the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils, 
or your abdomen moving in and out. Select a sensation that's prominent and then have the commitment to hold your attention there. Maintain it there. Now, pretty quickly, if you've ever tried to do this or anything that requires your attention, you realize the mind's not so cooperative and it'll wander away. And the second part of the instruction is when you notice, not if you've noticed that your mind's wandered, but when you noticed that your mind has wandered away, gently return it back and repeat. So essentially the push-up is select, maintain, notice, select again, maintain, notice. You know, it's just, it's, it's just this, this drill of, of getting your mind to really exercise these aspects of attention. So I'll, I'll emphasize again, just to make sure everyone understood that it, this is not the tactical breath. This is not four seconds in, four seconds out. This is not about developing VO2 max or anything along those lines. This is about training your brain to recognize when it wanders and then bringing it back to that thing that you've decided yeah, to be aware of. Absolutely. And the key to this practice isn't so much the breath. The breath is a handy tool. You could do mindfulness of walking. Mm-hmm. You could do mindfulness of movement while you're jogging. You know, there's many different domains in which you can practice this aspect of making your mind attentive, alert, and aware. And the whatever you choose as the focused object is up to you. It's good to do some type of what we call a silence practice, you know, where really it's, it's not about engaging with anything. You know, some people say, can I just do mindfulness of music and listen to my favorite song? It's like, sure, you can be in that state, but do something that is where there's not any other external stimulation, if possible, because that's the harder harder workout in some sense. That way you'll have to really deal with your mind's desire to mind wander. And you'll have to become familiar with that terrain. And taking an observational stance to our own mind wandering can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not about blocking out your thoughts. It's about noticing thoughts arise. You know, and almost to think of it as like clouds in the sky. They, they arise, and they're present, and then they pass away. And, you know, one of these kind of phrases that comes up in mindfulness training is, don't believe everything you think, which can be really helpful to remember um, because your thoughts are not truth. And sometimes they do not serve you. They do not lead you in the right direction. They could be flawed or filled with bias or really just wrongheaded. And to have that kind of humility and awareness that the brain is a thought generating machine, it mm-hmm. pumps out all kinds of thoughts um, and that there's a way you can handle its predilection to do that uh, can be helpful. So I mentioned my skepticism earlier. Throughout my training, I've always been well aware of the, the mind-body connection. I'm very good with that. I understand the idea of sleep deprivation and its draw on your attention span and your ability to think. The part that gets me is when I see common mindfulness packages out there, in the, primarily in the business world, that are packaged up that are pretty slick. And they're, they're pretty colors and bright whistles and things like that. There's a lot of talk of you know gratitude journals and, and positivity thought and different things like that that I just don't personally for myself, I don't see them being beneficial. What are your thoughts on some of that? <laughs> I mean, you know, I would first of all say that those aren't really what we're talking about when it comes to mindfulness practice. Okay. Sure can be part of the the larger enterprise of offering wellness in workplace settings, right? But let's just make some distinctions here. Mm-hmm. So there is an entire um, field of study known as positive psychology. And the there are there's certainly evidence that positive psychological training can be helpful, right? This basically is this orientation to cultivate more positive mood in one's life. And things like gratitude journals or, um, you know, joy practices or whatever it is, really reflecting on positive memories, these are all ways to increase the amount of positive mood in your mind. Mm-hmm. That is not what we're talking about with mindfulness training. 
And the, dis- the dif- distinction is that whereas the intention for positivity training is to manipulate the mind in a certain way to increase positive mood, you're doing something. You want to have different thoughts and more thoughts of a particular type. Mm-hmm. That's great. If that's the intention and you do it, it can probably have benefits for you. With mindfulness training, it's not about manipulation. Mm-hmm. It's about noticing what is happening. Now, under normal circumstances, meaning typical civilian life, I think a gratitude journal is probably good. But the question is whether you should be asking people to engage in such activities when they're under high stress and high pressure. Because the act of that type of mental manipulation, generation of positive thought, can be energetically costly. Mm -hmm. And certain circumstances, and soldiers have certainly said this to us, there's nothing positive that's just happened. I've just gone through something horrific, Mm -hmm. and I can't put a positive spin on it. So I'm fighting myself when being asked to look on the bright side. And I completely agree with that. Mm -hmm. So why am I bringing this up? Well, I'm actually bringing up the positivity mindfulness comparison because we did a study on this. Mm -hmm. One of the very first studies we did in the Strong Project is we compared a 16-hour positivity training with 16 hours of mindfulness training. And the intention for the positivity training, which there was good amount of evidence in the civilian literature that, that cultivating positive emotion, increasing positive mood can have beneficial effects. Nobody had actually ever formally studied it in the pre-deployment context, which is what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So um, we wanted to see what would happen if you put them sort of head to head. And what we found was that positivity training looked no different than no offering no training at all, which meant that there was an actual degradation in attention over an eight-week interval. There was less attention available at the end of eight weeks of pre-deployment training than at the beginning if we did nothing at all. Mm-hmm. That's actually bad news because pre-deployment training itself may be depleting your attention right. instead of best readying you. Positive Positivity training had a similar effect, mm-hmm. whereas mindfulness training actually kept attention stable over time. There was no degradation. And the more people practiced, the more they benefited in their attention. So I think that what my answer about, you know, whether what do I think about positivity journals, gratitude journals, I think that they're, they can be beneficial, but just make sure that you take care and when you decide to implement them and include them in your kind of repertoire of wellness activities, it may not be the right time to do that when you're already very depleted in your attentional resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and instead, think about taking on practices that allow you to take an observational, non-judgmental stance because you're going to probably need it to get through the challenge that you face. You know, if everything could produce immense emotional reactivity, learning how to actually keep your mind steady in the midst of high demand and high stress can be quite beneficial. You've used the phrase strengthening your mind. We've called it a mental push-up or something along those lines as we're talking about this. It sounds like an ad I've seen on TV for different apps I can put on my phone or, different, or, or my computer. <laughs> how valid are those? Yeah. So, you know, the idea of being able to train your brain to cultivate a stronger mind is just so appealing. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to do that? And there are many apps, what, what are called brain training apps, mm-hmm. right? These allow you to play simple video games that involve some kind of attention task or working memory task, and you play it for several weeks in a row. And the idea is that then with a stronger mind, you can go out and tackle the world and all the real problems that you might face in your day-to-day attentional challenges. Unfortunately, the problems most of those brain training computer-based apps suffer from is what we call generalizability. Mm -hmm. You definitely get better at the app. You know, just like if you played any video game, the more you play it, probably your score will get higher. The challenge is that the benefits don't seem to extend beyond 
the app game itself. Mm-hmm. So now you're trying to do something else and you, you're like, oh yeah, but I played that brain training game. You know, I should be able to solve this complex logistical challenge I face in my workplace. And all of a sudden you're finding, oh, it's not beneficial. So that's what the science is saying is that brain training games are not not showing any benefit outside of the, improving your performance. Whereas mindfulness, you know, this act of sitting quietly and focusing on the breath, we do find that now when you have people do computer-based tasks, when you index their brain function, we are seeing generalizable benefit beyond just being better breath followers, for Mm -hmm. example. And I think that's where the promise may be. Uh, It may be that this is a form of mental training that is more generalizable and portable and doesn't actually require any technology other than, you know, you've got to have a breath, which hopefully you do. And again, I'll come back to the breath one more time. You use the breath simply because it's with you all the time. It's a handy tool. It's, you don't need any extra any extra toys, any extra technology, any extra equipment no, or anything else. And, it's there. You know, this going back to what you know what General Pyatt was saying to me is that you gave my you give my you've given my soldiers a way to exercise their brain, whether they're you know in their home or they're on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan. It's mm. the same tool that they can use no matter where they are to keep that brain in 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 at its top. So we, we've addressed this in terms of high stress occupations and folks that are dealing with, with stressful situations. Uh, obviously, we, we can see what the benefits might be there in terms of able to, being able to maintain your, your attention and, and maintaining the now as you're in a high stress situation. What, what are the other benefits that might be out there for mindfulness? Yeah, so the, the interest in studying the benefits of mindfulness is really take a kind of explosion in terms of research studies that are being published now. Um, and we do know quite a bit. You know, These are studies that have looked at people in the broad civilian context, typically in medical center, centers where mindfulness training is offered as something like an eight-week program. And the mm-hmm. most common program that's available quite commonly is called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. This is a course developed by a a dear colleague and mentor, John Kabat-Zinn, at the UMass Medical Center. And he really started offering this for people that were not finding any relief from standard medicine. These were chronic pain patients that just, there was no other way to help them. Mm -hmm. And through that kind of methodology, this eight-week course, now many mindfulness-based interventions have emerged on the scene. So we've got mindfulness-based training for anxiety and depression and uh, binge eating disorder. I mean, I could go on and on with a list of what we call MBIs that are available. Mm -hmm. And there is growing evidence that these are quite beneficial, meaning that um, across the board, we've found that mindfulness training of some form or other can help aspects of functioning in the body, suffering in the body, Mm -hmm. whether it's, it's chronic pain or recovery from other types types of illnesses, you know, whether it's in it's some kind of inflammatory psoriasis, or um, even recovering from large organ transplant, there was a study that was done on that blood pressure, etc. So the body can be benefited from mindfulness training, and probably chronic pain is the most well uh, studied aspect that's the str- has the strongest evidence. Then we can move to the mind. What do we know about mindfulness in the mind? And there is now strong evidence that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy can help people and protect against relapse and depression, major depressive disorder. Very important. Same with mindfulness-based therapies for anxiety and suicidality and PTSD. So its use in the clinical context is quite uh, prevalent, and there's, and there's positive support, at least for depression and anxiety, that it's beneficial. 
And probably the newest area that we're finding benefits for is mindfulness as it relates to relationships, Mm -hmm. whether it's in workplace settings or in marriages or in family dynamics. Um, you know, it's, there's growing evidence that it's, that it's beneficial. So now with finding that the body, the mind and relationships can benefit, people want to bring it into many different sectors of society. Mindfulness and education is a big topic. Looking at first responders and offering them training, workplace settings. So it really has taken on this sort of, that's what I would call the hype in some sense. There's a big interest in it. And as scientists, it's our job to make sure that the, delivery that's made available to the broad public is supported by evidence, that these are evidence-based practices. So nobody's wasting their time or, or getting a false sense that they're being helped when they're really not. Mm-hmm. So the War College brought you here today to do this noontime lecture because we thought there was a population that could benefit from your message and from this, from, well, more importantly, from your studies and the actual science that shows that the benefit of mindfulness. Where can the average citizen go out there and find more? What would you recommend to go out and learn more about mindfulness? Well, they can, of course, visit our website. Which is? <laughs> uh, attention.miami.edu. Attention, okay. you can remember, because that's what I study. Attention.miami.edu, and that has all of our published papers, et cetera. And we also have resources that people can uh, go to to check out how to learn how to practice, uh, broad topics on what the science says about mindfulness, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I would say the main thing for the average person is that if you read something about mindfulness... And what it's suggesting to you is that you need to manipulate your mind in any particular way to achieve a certain mood or a certain blissed out state. You know, even if you see images of people that look kind of like, you know, they're going to float up into the sky, probably that's not going to be the right strategy to learn how to do this. This is really around grounding yourself with clarity and awareness of the present moment. So no drum circles are necessary, no patchouli smoke. They're in the not background. necessary at all. Okay. Where can we go learn more about you? <laughs> Same place. Okay. Yeah. That that way you can learn about all the things that we're up to in my lab, the research we're doing. And actually, I would encourage you to also check out mindfulness.miami.edu, where we have a lot of offerings of mindfulness to the broad public. And to be clear, you pointed out today in your briefing that uh, you had about another 12 folks back in the, the lab that are the, the workhorses doing a lot of this work. That's right. I would never, we always say science is a team sport. And I would be lost without the wonderful team that allows me to talk about anything that we do. So before we close this, What's your parting shot for the audience? Yeah, I think one thing that I I would like to convey is my broad interest Mm -hmm. is allowing people to come to the understanding, this cultural understanding, that the mind, just like the body, needs regular exercise to stay mentally healthy. Mm -hmm. And we understand this for the body. You know, it's no big deal to see a gym or people running down the street, but if you did this 100 years ago, people would have thought you were very strange, mm-hmm. right? And now we know that we do this to stay healthy. The mind's no different. And the science now will hopefully help guide us on ways we can keep our mind healthy through daily exercise of this sort. Well, with that, I want to say thank you very much for coming out to the, uh, the Noontime Lecture in the first place and addressing the, the resident class. And we really appreciate you taking extra time today to sit down here in the studio with us at the War Room and, uh, and give us your thoughts on mindfulness. This is definitely something for, uh, for us to think about, for our entire listing population to think about. I think there's uh, some incredible benefits for everyone, as you've stated, and we're, we're grateful for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Safe travels back. Thank you. And that's all today from the War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. 
Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.